This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Well, it is great to be with you again. Bible study, it is one of the most important duties and I would say privileges that we have as literate 21st century Christians. And the only problem is that it is often neglected. And even when we do dive into scripture, it can be daunting to try to derive all the meaning and the big themes that are in the passages and the particular books of the Bible that we read. Well, my next guest has put together a really great book in particular to help us study the New Testament in chronological order. Dr. Ron Rhodes is president of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministries, and we're going to get some Bible study help today from him as we talk about his book, 90 Days Through the New Testament. And it's wonderful to have you here, Dr. Rhodes. How are you? Well, thank you so much. It's always good to be with you. Thank you so much. Now, you have written, as many people will know, you've written a lot of helpful books on a lot of different topical issues, biblical issues. Why put together a New Testament study like this in chronological order? What is the importance of this, would you say? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, I really feel like we're in trouble in this nation, and I feel like we've got a spiritual crisis that's like never before. I think our moral compass is no longer pointing north, and I I think that even a lot of Christians that attend church are off track. And so what I wanted to do is to kind of switch my attention for a few seasons to Bible study-type books that draw people back into the Scriptures, because I really feel that the answer to our spiritual woes is found in the Bible. And uh, I I think that in, in many ways... One of the reasons why we've gotten off track is, is that the form of Christianity so many people follow today is so influenced by either worldly things or maybe culture. And, you know, it's, it's back to the Bible for me. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I, just, I just feel like uh, it's the missing uh, color in the Christian rainbow today. I mean, we just need to return to the scriptures. And, uh, you know, there's a strong parallel, Janet, between your love for the Bible and your love for Christ. And, you know, when I look at Christians today, I'm not seeing the kind of love for Christ that ought to be there. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that people have fallen away from the scriptures because the Bible is a Jesus book. Yes. And so I wrote this book on the New Testament just as one of a number of books that I've written to, to draw people into scriptures but to make it easy to do it. Yes, and you really have done that. And I'm really glad to hear what you just said because I couldn't agree more with you. I think that there is a lot of assumption out there that if you are a Christian, if you're coming to church every week, and if you're worshiping, going to Sunday school, you will know the Bible and you'll especially know the New Testament because it's all about Jesus. But really the biblical literacy, or I should say illiteracy rates that we've seen from some of these polls indicate we are in dire trouble. Well, we are in dire trouble, and I think that one of the reasons why even Christians have sort of a compromising attitude on a lot of moral issues may not be because they necessarily want to compromise, but maybe they don't really know what the Bible teaches. And I know that from my perspective, you know, um, as I study not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, 
One of the things that's always such a tendency among God's people is that they get into the routine of religion. Mm-hmm. They go through the motions. And one of the things that you see God telling his people over and over again in the Bible is, I don't want your routine. I don't want you going through the motions. Uh, I want a real relationship. Yep. I want a relationship with you, where you hear what I say, where you learn what I teach, and where you ob- obey me, where you follow me. And I think we've gotten away from that. I, I think there's a lot of Christians who are in the routine of religion, but I think that we have fallen away from what God really wants us, of us, and that's this, uh, this close relationship and this love for the Word of God. Yes. And I think it's so self-defeating if we fall away from that, Janet, because, you know, one of the things that Psalm 119 tells us is that the Bible can revive our souls. Yes, it can. You know, if you want a revival, a personal revival in your heart, it starts with your intruding yourself upon the Word of God, just infusing yourself with the Word of God. And once you do that, you start to see spiritual changes in your life. Absolutely. What would you say to those who perhaps are new believers who really have never sat down and read the entire New Testament about the reason you can trust this book, the Bible in general, but as we're talking about the New Testament, what is it about these 27 books that we can say unequivocally, are this, this is the very Word of God? Well, you know, there's a lot of things I could say, but I think I'm going to begin with the fact that this is not mythology, it's not legend, but rather everything in the Bible is inspired by God. And what that means is, it doesn't mean that, like it's inspirational to read. You know, I visited this liberal church in Houston, Texas, and the main pastor told me that the Bible is inspired in the sense that it's inspiring to read like Shakespeare is. Oh, That is so wrong. You know, Shakespeare was a man-made document, but the Bible is inspired in the sense that it's breathed out by God. That's what the word means. And so, to the extent that you honor God's word, you are honoring God himself, because God's word comes from God himself. It's not based on legend or myth, but it's based on eyewitness testimony. Uh, And not only that, but uh, when you look at how Jesus and the apostles treated the Bible— they treated it as having supreme authority in their lives. It just wasn't another book that you go into a store and buy, but rather it was the supreme revelation of God. And uh, when you look at how Jesus used the Bible versus how many modern Christians use it, I think there's a pretty big difference between the two. And so I think that we've got to recover that sense of awe, that sense of um, devotion to God's Word, Now, I have to tell you, Janet, I think I know one of the reasons why so many people are having problems here, and that is because the Bible is being attacked left and right. Oh, yes. In the media. Yep. And not only is it being attacked in terms of being untrustworthy as a document, but we've also got so many people attacking the ethics of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Like it's, uh, you know, it's for a foregone era. It's no longer relevant for today. That might have worked back in the first century, but it's no longer relevant for today. Well, I think that times may have changed, but humanity still has the same basic issues. And that basic issue basically is rooted in the fact that we've all fallen away from God. The Bible calls it sin. But, uh, you know, we need to to recognize that God's Word is true for all people for all ages. It is. None of of this relativism stuff that you see in the book of Judges. No, Where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That is a terrific point. And you think of the different passages in Scripture, for example, where where it talks about the the Word of God being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And you see about taking up the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6. This is the one thing we can use on the offense. 
And I think unless we, in many respects, change our view of how we should read the Bible, we will continue to be in trouble. Because as you've mentioned before, when you know, we do have this problem with Christians even today being deceived into thinking that the Bible is merely an inspirational book. It'll make me feel good. I just yeah. I flip to the verse and God will just lead me to one verse and it just makes me really, really happy. And then I can go about my day and everything is great. I, I think the times that are upon us right now are quickly showing us how that approach to scripture is not going to sustain us. Well, no, it's not. You know, um, I I did a little bit of study on starvation one time. I was doing some work on that. And, you know, aside from damage to multiple body organs, there is weakness and a loss of vitality. There's a very low energy. There is stunted growth. All of those things are part and parcel of starvation. Mm. Today, I think that people are experiencing spiritual starvation. Yeah. And you can see it in their lives. There's spiritual weakness and there's a spiritual loss of vitality. They've experienced a stunted spiritual growth. And the solution to the problem is to feast, not just feed upon, but to feast upon the Word of God. And that's one of the reasons I wrote 90 Days Through the New Testament, because I'm teaching you how to feast. In fact, you know, if you look at the cover of the book, you see uh, some uh, fish and bread. You know, that's by design there. Yes. Of course, that's one of the parables of Jesus, and it talks about how Jesus fed 5,000 people with, uh, you know, with uh, just a couple of fish and some loaves of bread. But really, we can feast upon the Word of God, and to the extent that we feast upon the Word of God, no longer do we have a loss of spiritual vitality, and no longer do we have that spiritual weakness. You know, so especially for those new Christians who are listening, I hope you take this seriously. You know, there are so many Christians out there whose soul or spirit is kind of like a desert wasteland. Mm. And the reason for that is that they're no longer plugged into the Word of God. And so I say, come back to the Bible, plug yourself into Scripture, and come alive. I love it. We'll do it when we come back. Dr. Ron Rhodes, 90 Days Through the New Testament. We'll kick it off next. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. 
Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today, and we are diving into the New Testament with Dr. Ron Rhodes. We are so excited that he is here to help us really feast on Scripture, as you were saying before we went to the break, Dr. Rhodes. And Christ is the Word. It isn't just diving into the Word as a bunch of words on a page, but Christ is the Word, as John teaches in chapter one of the Gospel of John. He is the bread of life upon which we can feast. And this really is, as you've said, the Jesus book. And when we begin to study the New Testament, obviously it's all about Jesus. We start in chronological order going through those Gospels. But what is the purpose? First of all, people will look at the Gospels and say, why all these genealogies, Dr. Rhodes? Why does God make us kind of go through all these different names of people who preceded Jesus when we should just be able to dive right into it? At least the, uh, you know, Matthew and Luke for sure. But why the genealogies? Well, for one thing, uh, the genealogies point to the reality of the Incarnation, which is one of the most important events of human history. And, you know, there may be some new listeners who don't even know what the word incarnation means. And so what I mean by that is that Jesus actually stepped out of eternity as God and became a human being. And there was a moment in time in which the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, and did a divine miracle. He created a human nature within Mary's womb, And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, stepped into that womb Mm. and became united with humanity forever. And so when we're talking about the genealogies, you know, we're looking at uh, different purposes in the genealogies. Uh, Just as an example, in Matthew, uh, Matthew's is a gospel that really focuses on convincing Jewish people that uh, that Jesus truly is the divine Messiah. Mm. And if you were a Jew living back in the first century, there's two questions that would come up in your mind about this uh, claim to be the Messiah. Number one, are you related to Abraham? And number two, are you related to David? Hmm. You've got to be related to both of those, because you've got the Davidic covenant back in Second Samuel 7, and you've got the uh, Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, and the Messiah had to be a descendant from both of those, David right. and Abraham. Right. Well, so that's really kind of what uh, Matthew's genealogies does. It, it traces uh, Joseph's line of descendants, and uh, it, it traces that legal throne all the way back to the throne of David. And, you know, this is not something that's just an Old Testament doctrine. You know, the, the Christ, as the, the one who reigns on the throne of David, just as like a thread that goes all through the Bible, uh, even into the future millennial kingdom. And I know that different Christians have different views on that. But suffice it to say, it's an important doctrine. 
Now, when you get to Luke's gospel, there are some differences, but the differences are designed to show a different emphasis. Luke's genealogy traces Mary's lineage all the way back to the time of the commencement of the human race, thereby proving his humanity. Now, Janet, here's an, an important thing. It's orthodox to say that Jesus is God. But another requirement for orthodoxy is to recognize that Jesus was a man. Right, good. He became a man. And when you think about that, doesn't it make good sense? Um, I might put it this way. You're a good person, Janet. You'd never get in trouble. (laughs) But if you were back in uh, biblical times and you got in trouble and you got thrown in jail, it would be the job of the kinsman redeemer, somebody related to you by blood, to come and bail you out of jail. Mm. Well, listen, you and I are fallen in sin. That's what the New Testament teaches us. We're fallen in sin. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He's the one who comes to buy us and to set us free from our bondage. But he had to become related to us by blood for that to happen. Wonderful. That's the necessity of the incarnation. Jesus became a man in order to redeem us out of the slave market of sin and Satan. And so when we talk about the genealogies, it's not just some kind of a boring doctrine but rather it's a doctrine that is just absolutely central to uh, to Christ coming to earth in order to rescue us. For sure. And this is something that you really, when you have that background and you understand the significance and the importance uh, of the genealogies, then you understand more and more why God put that right there in the Gospels. So when we jump to, and there are different passages, obviously, we could jump to the whole New Testament. But when we jump to John chapter 3, for example, uh, you concentrate uh, in a portion of the book on John chapter 3, such a significant passage, which talks about the new birth, Nicodemus, and so forth. This is one of the major themes in this passage about the new birth. But a lot of people will boil down the discussion about being born again to just a feeling within your soul. And you see this in some some of these polls that come out, you know, are you born again? And when you really delve into some of the answers, I, I'm not so sure everybody who thinks they're born again are really are born again because they're not really understanding what Jesus meant. What did Jesus mean? You need to become born again. Well, that is so important because to tell you the truth, Janet, I've also heard that phrase born again used in a lot of Hollywood movies. Uh, yes. You know, and these Hollywood movies say born again in the sense of, Maybe getting a new grip on life. Yeah. Maybe um, somehow reforming your life so that things get better. And that's not the case uh, in John chapter 3. Now, you have to keep in mind that Jesus is actually talking to a Jewish leader. And I think that Nicodemus was actually struggling within his soul because he had heard Jesus speak. And I think that the Spirit was bearing witness to the truth of what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. And I think that he wanted to know more, and that's one of the reasons why the text tells us that Nicodemus came uh, to Jesus by night. Mm. He wanted to find out more about all of this stuff. And then Jesus says one of the most amazing things. He tells him that he must be born again. Now that phrase, literally from the Greek, can be translated born from above. It's a spiritual birth. It refers to the act of God by which he gives eternal life to the one who believes in Christ. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, you're, you're infused in the, the, the eternal family of God. Now, here's why this is so necessary, Janet. You know, you've got a lot of false religions out there in the world, and you've got a lot of cults out there, and all of those cults and false religions are vying for men's minds today. Mm-hmm. And in our country, we've got just tons of false religions and cults. Right. Now, here's the issue. 
all of those false religions and cults basically try to take bad men and make them better by ethics. Mm -hmm. Be Mm -hmm. a better person by ethics. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus comes on the scene, and he wants to take dead men and make them alive. You see, we're all dead in sin. And because we're dead in sin, we need to be born from above. We need to be born again, and that's what it's talking about in John chapter 3. And the moment that you're born again, you've got this brand new capacity. It's a spiritual capacity, and it's a capacity through which you can relate to God, you can understand God. Formerly, spiritual things didn't make much sense to you. The worldly person who doesn't have the Spirit of God within him, you know, he can hear somebody preach a sermon and think it's just nonsense, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the world is that way. But once you become born again, you've got this new spiritual nature, and then the Holy Spirit starts to work within your heart so that you can understand the things of God from the Bible. And at that moment, a growth process begins. And so even though you're just born again at a moment in time, there is a process that begins at that moment throughout the rest of your life where you begin to take on the family likeness. Yes. In other words, you become more like Christ. And so it's a wonderful thing to see. I know that I became born again after years of attending a church, thinking that I was a Christian because I went to church. Wow. And of all places, Janet, I met Jesus in Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. People ask, can anything good come out of Hollywood? (laughs) Well, I became a believer. And so it's just funny the way that God can work. And uh, after God... uh, you know, made me alive spiritually. That's when I decided to dump Hollywood, and I went to you know seminary, and I've been involved in ministry ever since, and haven't looked back. So neat, and we're so grateful that God did that in your life. But you also made a, a really good point in explaining what born again, born from above, is all about. Because when you look at other religions, other cults, and sometimes, unfortunately, some pockets of Christianity where there is confusion reigning. When you are man reaching up to God, you will never be able to make yourself born from above. That is something you cannot achieve. Salvation is of the Lord. So is this not also something that really comes out in Scripture again and again and again, that God acts upon us by his Holy Spirit through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? He changes us and we come to him. We cannot earn our way to him. It is all from him. Well, you know, that's exactly where I used to be. That's where I got it wrong. Mm. I had attended a church, and it was actually a liberal church, and this church had taught that we just need to do good things, and not only do we need to do good things as individuals, but as a group we need to do good things and try to reform society and make society better. Mm. And if you do that, you know, you might experience some sensation of heaven on earth, uh, you might experience what they call the second coming. To them, the second coming is when you find God in your heart. Oh, wow. So it's a complete redefinition of things. But I thought that I needed to do good things. And once I started to understand the true gospel, I saw that even when I tried to do good things, that I was still fallen. And I also began to read passages like Romans 7, where the Apostle Paul was talking. And you know, the Apostle Paul, I mean, he's about as good a guy as you can get, right? Yes. But he said... You know, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I know I shouldn't do, I do. And I felt like that was a perfect description of me. Me too. <laughs> you know, so I began to see very clearly that, uh, you know, Paul couldn't, you know, bring himself to salvation in his own strength. I mean, nobody can. And so you're right. It, it is a, it's an act of God where he supernaturally enlivens you. 
That's what being born again is, and it's the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit involves also preparing your heart. And I think that God had prepared my heart by making me disillusioned. Hmm. You know, when I was in Hollywood pursuing a Hollywood career, I was doing all those TV shows out there like The Tonight Show and some other shows. But I was so disillusioned because I was seeing that all these rich, famous people, they just didn't have anything together. And my definition of success was wrong. And I finally, in my disillusionment, was open to the things of God, and I met up with some other Christians there. And through that, came to understand the teaching of Scripture. Incredible. Well, we're going to go to another break. We'll come back. Dr. Ron Rhodes, 90 Days Through the New Testament. Stay with us on Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Dr. Ron Rhodes joining me this hour, talking about the New Testament. We should all know the New Testament, and yet, if we're really honest, there are a lot of us who have never really sat down and read it all the way through, and this is a fantastic resource for you, if you've never done that, to dig into the major themes of the Bible, to see all of the overviews of Scripture, to apply it to your life. You know, we were talking a little bit about your coming to Christ, Dr. Rhodes, before we went to the break. When we look at the New Testament, we see the absolute uniqueness of Jesus. And yet, as we were talking about John 3, the need to be born again, to be born from above, you think of the Sermon on the Mount. This is another you know, very major section of Scripture for sure, Matthew 5 through 7. A lot of people today will look at that section of Scripture and say, this is Jesus, the social justice warrior. He's telling us how to be moral. And obviously, there's a lot in there about how we, how we should treat one another. But what would you say is the overarching idea behind the Sermon on the Mount? What is Jesus really teaching at root? How should we understand the Sermon on the Mount biblically? Well, I understand. I, you know, I've seen so many fancy theories on this. You know, I've got a doctorate in theology, so I've, I've heard a lot of lectures on this as well. Can I be honest? Yes. I think that there's an awful lot of people that make this so much more complex than it needs to be. <laughs> yeah. I really do. And... To me, just by the the very way that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, I think that Jesus throughout this book is is not necessarily focusing primarily on social justice, even though social justice may end up coming to pass. Mm -hmm. I think first and foremost, Jesus is talking about how to have a happy spiritual life that's full of the abundant life. Mm, You know, Jesus is our creator. Uh, You know, Colossians 1.16, John 1.3, Jesus created everything that there is. Yes. I know that we often talk about God as the creator, but, you know, the Bible does say Jesus was the agent of creation. Yes. And I believe that the Bible is kind of like his manufacturer's handbook. And since he created us, he knows how we work best. He knows how we're going to be at our most fulfilled. He knows what's going to bring us the most pleasure. He knows what's going to bring us the most misery. So he tells us the kind of life 
for finding true happiness in life. And so he basically comes down saying, happy are those who are humble and patient, who yearn for righteousness, uh, who are merciful to other people, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers in a world of hostility. And, uh, you know, what a contrast this is to modern formulas for happiness. And I'm talking, of course, about the self-help books that you can find in any uh, bookstore. You can find about 10 linear feet of self-help books on how to have uh, fulfillment in life. Mm -hmm. Why not go to the Sermon on the Mount? Mm -hmm. And the Sermon on the Mount does tell us how to live, how to have that fulfilled life. But you know, the, the end result of a number of Christians living that kind of fulfilled life will end up making a very positive impact on society. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're going to be salt and light in the world. Amen. And I think that that's one of the things where Christians have kind of um, fallen away from today. I, I think that today we have an awful lot of Christians who have a hideous disease known by its Latin term, non rockabotus <laughs> I like that. You know, we, we're afraid <laughs> to rock the boat because there's so many people shouting us down in the world, right. in the secular world. And I don't think it was ever meant to be that way. I, I think that we uh, look at the Sermon on the Mount and we see a revolution. We see a revolutionary kind of life. And don't get me wrong, none of us has the power in ourselves to live that kind of life. But as you continue to read through the Scriptures, we discover that as we walk in the Holy Spirit, it is the power of the Holy Spirit that can reproduce that kind of abundant life that we read all about in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm, And so I take the New Testament as a package deal. Yeah, you You have to. You have to. You really have to. You have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I put together a whole book on the New Testament, especially in 90 days, is that by the end of that 90-day period, I want people to go, wow, was that ever something else? Yes, right. Not because of Ron Rhodes or my book. No, No, sir but because of being infused with the New Testament, and maybe for the first time in your life, understanding what it means. Uh, I consider myself kind of like a tour guide, and the tour guide always kind of takes you by the hand and shows you all the cool stuff you probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do in this book. Oh, you do. Now, when we talk about the main events in Jesus' life, clearly the Passion Week is the most significant, where we get to Jesus' trial and his uh, crucifixion and resurrection from the dead and then his ascension. What about, though, the rest of his ministry, where we see, in particular, we see the Lord using parables quite a bit, and we also see him performing miracles. What was the role, would you say, of the the parable being used to teach and the miracle being demonstrated as a sign of God's power? What was the significance of those two aspects of Jesus' ministry? Well, in terms of the parables, I think that Jesus knew that we understand things best when we have word pictures. Now, I can illustrate that best with my children. You know, um, my children are grown now. But when they were little kids, I had to use word pictures to help them understand the teaching of scriptures. So just to give you an example of what I mean by a word picture, uh, what about the doctrine of inspiration? How are you going to talk to a six-year-old about inspiration, about the fact that God inspired scripture so there's no mistakes in it? Well, the way that I put it to my kids was, is that if you look at uh, an elementary school and there's a play, Uh, Who is it behind the scenes who makes sure that all the kids get their lines right? Well, the teacher is always backstage reading the lines to make sure that all the kids get their lines exactly right. Well, my kids understood that. Mm -hmm. They picked up on that. It's a word picture, and I use that as a means of saying that it's the same way with God's Word, that even though human beings were involved, 
that the Holy Spirit made sure they got the words just right. That's great. And so Jesus uses the same kind of methodology to teach us. And the fact is, is that we do have a tendency to learn better by word pictures. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking spiritual concepts and illustrating them by uh, physical things. You know, I mean, he will illustrate different things about the kingdom of God by talking about things that people already know about. For example, um, when Jesus is talking about different kinds of commitment and responses to the Word of God and to the preaching of the Word of God, Jesus tells a parable about a sower that threw seed on four different kinds of soil. Wayside soil, rocky soil, thorn-ridden soil, and good soil. And obviously, if a seed does not take root, it's not going to really grow up into anything. But if a seed does take root, well, that's going to blossom. And, and by that word picture, Jesus helps us to understand that some people really get rooted in the Word of God, and there's a lot of fruit that develops. Other people, they just don't get rooted in the Word of God, and it, it just kind of falls by the wayside. They might excite them for maybe a day or two, but then they fall away from it, and they're no longer committed to the Word of God. And so that's what I mean. Jesus takes some concept in the real world And he uses that to illustrate a spiritual truth. And Jesus was a master of doing this kind of thing. Now, of course, a lot of his parables were about the kingdom of God. This was kind of a new idea that a lot of people he talked about. And so he gave many different parables to illustrate different aspects of the kingdom. You know, for example, uh, Janet, uh, everybody back in Bible times knew that a mustard seed was among the smallest of seeds, but it grew to be really big. Hmm. Well, Jesus used that as a way of illustrating that the kingdom of God was going to start kind of small, you know, with the disciples, but it was going to grow through the centuries to become very, very big. And so, again, he takes spiritual concepts and he illustrates those with things that people are already familiar with. Now, as for the miracles, oh, this could get exciting. Um, (laughs) I mean, I could preach for the next hour on this part. I love it. You know, the, the miracles were often called signs, especially in the Gospel of John. And signs always signify something. For example, if I'm driving down the road and I see a blue sign with hospital on it saying next exit, I know that if I exit, I'm going to find a hospital. Okay, that's a sign that signifies that a hospital is near. Yes. Well, in the Bible, the miracles of Jesus are called signs because they always signify something. And what do they signify? They signify that he is, in fact, the divine Messiah. Now, you might remember from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 11 and and a number of other Messianic passages that when the Messiah came, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear, the blind would see. And guess what? When Jesus came on the scene, the blind could see and the deaf could hear and the lame could walk. How about that? We're going to go to another break, but we'll come back. Dr. Ron Rhodes helping us walk through the New Testament. Stay with us.
The U.N. has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of $116 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, if you have ever had any difficulty understanding the New Testament or even sitting down and reading it, this will be a wonderful resource for you. It's Dr. Ron Rhodes' 90 Days Through the New Testament in Chronological Order, and it's just put together in such a way that it'll really help you in your Bible study. And we're kind of hitting the highlights here, Dr. Rhodes, tonight. it's very difficult to do the whole New Testament in an hour, Dr. Rhodes, but <laughs> we're trying anyway. But you made a great point about the, the purpose of miracles, that they were, they were signs where Jesus was turning the water into wine or raising Lazarus from the dead or healing the man more blind. These things were signs of the kingdom. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, the kingdom was present because the king was present. And we know that the king was present because the signs of the king were right there. You might remember when uh, John the Baptist got thrown in, the, in jail. Remember that? Yes. And, uh, you know, he, he began to wonder if Jesus was the one after all, you know. And uh, the reason he thought that is that from his understanding of the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was all about liberty and freedom. But here he was in jail. <laughs> And so he sends a message to Jesus, are you the one? And so, you know, basically Jesus responded by saying, you know, the the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. He was making the point to John the Baptist that Jesus was the fulfillment of the messianic signs. And so therefore, yes, he was the one. And so I I think that that too often today we think of Jesus as this uh, lowly carpenter, uh, we listen to some of the redefinitions of Jesus that we hear about in secular newspapers and so forth. But let's just get this right. He was the divine Messiah, and he proved it over and over again. Not only that, but he performed the miracle of miracles. And that is to say he resurrected himself from the dead. Mm. 
Now, to be fair, uh, Scripture says that all three persons of the Trinity were involved in resurrecting Jesus. Mm-hmm. We know from Romans 8 that Jesus was raised by the Spirit. We also know that the Father raised Jesus when you look at the Gospel accounts. But in, Jesus, uh, in John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple of my body, and I will raise it in three days. Yes, he did. So Jesus raised himself from the dead. I mean, so that's just an incredible miracle right there. Oh, it is. So let's make sure that we get this right, because like I said earlier, the Bible is a Jesus book. And the New Testament is a Jesus Testament. Mm. And if you're missing this part, you're, you're actually missing the main message of the Bible. Absolutely. It's all pointing toward Christ as the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promise that was throughout the Old Testament. And here he comes to Passion Week. He goes through this unjust trial. He is chosen rather than Barabbas to be crucified. He goes to the cross. He's abandoned by everybody. On the third day, he rises again, just as he said. And my favorite part of that entire week, I think, when I read the the Gospels, is that ripping of the veil in the temple where the the veil is torn in two from top to bottom. Comment on that, if you would, Dr. Rhodes, just the significance of the fulfillment of all of those centuries of prophecy. Well, it it is just a a glorious, glorious thing when you understand the significance. You know, the temple uh, curtain was torn from top to bottom, and basically the timing is so significant you know, this didn't happen at the beginning of his ministry. This didn't happen in the middle of his ministry. We're talking about the import of Christ dying on the cross for the sins of man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see, it says that at that time, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. And basically what that showed was that the way of access to God's presence was now available. Exactly. You know, in previous centuries, you know, the, the, the high priest had to first offer sacrifices for his own sins. And when he offered sacrifices for his own sins, even then they would tie a rope around his foot when he went into the, the inner part of the temple. They did that because if he was profane in any way and God killed him, they could still drag him out of there. Mm. And then after he successfully paid for his own sins, then he would sacrifice an animal um, uh, you know, for the sins of the people, and they also get a scapegoat, and they would confess the sins of the people onto the scapegoat and send it into the wilderness, indicating the separation of sin from the people, and they had to do that every year. All right, now, fast forward to Jesus' death on the cross. Not only did the veil break, thereby indicating full access into the very presence of God for all people, but Jesus was also the Lamb of God, mm-hmm. and upon him as the scapegoat, all the sins of humanity were poured. That's you, that's me, that's everyone, so that now we have unfettered access to the Heavenly Father. Now, it can't get better than that. No, and the Lamb of God, and and again, when you're talking about the New Testament, Hebrews is a tremendous book to spend time in on this issue of Jesus being the great high priest. He was both the sacrifice and the great high priest who's after the order of Melchizedek, so his kingdom will have no end. I mean, that it just blows your mind when you really delve into, especially more and more about the Old Testament history and Judaism and, and what the promises all were, fulfilled in Christ. Well, that's right, and that's one of the reasons why we say that the entire Old Testament pointed forward to the coming of Christ. And I'm sure that you remember Luke 24, where Jesus is walking along the road uh, to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. Yes. And the text says that Jesus walked them through the Old Testament, pointing out all the stuff that was talking about him. Yes. And I don't believe that that was just talking about prophecies. 
You know, a lot of people think, and maybe it's just the, the Messianic prophecies. No, I think it was a lot more than that. I think that Jesus did talk about the prophecies to these two disciples, but he also pointed out all of his pre-incarnate appearances to people in Old Testament times, to people like Moses and Abraham. And he also pointed to typological institution. Now, a type is something that is real in history, but also points forward to something in the future. So, for example, when you look at the lambs that were sacrificed in Old Testament times, those had typological significance because it points forward to the coming of the definitive Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Right. And when you look at the sacrificial system, that sacrificial system was typological of the reality that one day the Messiah would be sacrificed in our place. And it wasn't just as if the Messiah was sacrificed for the whole of humanity like a group. Rather, every single human being, that's Janet, that's Ron, and that's everybody that's listening. That's great. And it's, it's just a marvelous truth. It is. I'd love to have been there listening to the Lord explaining everything concerning him in the Old Listen, Testament. I hope that it was videotaped. Yeah. You know, once I get to heaven, I'm going to watch that thing. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Incredible passage. So we know in the final analysis as we go through the rest of the New Testament, which we don't have time to do, unfortunately, time constraints uh, prohibit that. But where we see Paul's letters, the establishment of the early church and the encouragement and the rebuking and the, the uh, elucidation of the gospel and of theology in the book of Romans. Romans and so forth. But when we are talking about Jesus in particular uh, and how it kind of comes around, of course, you and I have talked a lot about the book of Revelation in the past. Christ talks in the Olivet Discourse and speaks in Matthew 24 and in uh, other passages, Mark 13, about his return. A lot of people are looking in the heavens right now at the blood moons and thinking about all these things and all the signs in the Middle East. Why is this significant to consider that Christ is coming again? Well, the fact that Christ is coming again is an essential doctrine of Christianity because it involves the final phase of our salvation. Any doctrine related to salvation is an essential doctrine. And when Christ comes again, uh, one of the wonderful things that happens is that he sets up his own kingdom. You and I get resurrection bodies, which I call body upgrades. Great. No more aging, no more uh, arterial disease, no more kidney disease, no more anything. And you can still eat food in those resurrection bodies, by the way. True. And we're going to live forever face-to-face. In fact, Revelation 21 and 22 talks about the eternal state and talks about the new Jerusalem, which is a, it's like a brand-new city that Christ has created that's going to be on a new earth. And so the bottom line is this, Janet. You and I will have resurrection bodies. We'll live on a resurrected earth in a resurrected universe. <sighs> And that is the culmination of salvation. And, of course, that's why the, the second coming is so important. It's the second coming that brings all that about. And why the church was encouraged to comfort one another with these words, our future hope that Christ is coming. And you think of the Christians in the Middle East under persecution. Yes. What better comfort is there in moments like that than to say at, at, at God's judgment, this will all be made right? Well, that's right. In fact, in Colossians 3, it tells us to continually keep our minds focused on the things of heaven. And I think that's probably exactly what those Christians did over there in the Middle East. Um, what it, it's a present tense, and it's an imperative right there in Colossians 3. The imperative means it's a command. God commands us to have an eternal perspective. Mm-hmm. But when it's a present tense, that indicates continuing action. We are to keep on keeping on 24-7, having an eternal perspective that focuses on the things of heaven, And if you do that, 
it's going to keep the tribulations that we encounter in check. Mm -hmm. And yes, we're going to have many tribulations as we enter the kingdom of God, but it's that eternal perspective that puts wind in our sails, and it's that uh, eternal perspective that helps us to have patient endurance. Amen. So well said. And such a great book. I just highly commend it. It's 90 Days Through the New Testament in Chronological Order. Dr. Ron Rhodes joining us this hour. And it always goes so fast with you, Dr. Rhodes, but I thank you so much again for being with us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. You take care and thanks again. Again, 90 Days Through the New Testament, a wonderful resource for you if you really want to delve deeply and feast on the Word of God. A wonderful thing to help you do that. Thank you so much for being with us. Our website is Janet Mefford. God bless. This hour of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.